Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. I'd like to open today's episode with a couple of shout-outs. First one is to listener David Heatdirks down in Virginia, USA. Thanks for the feedback, and you can be sure that the Douglas SBD Dauntless is definitely on the list for a future show. I'd also like to thank Dan Mercurio from the Warbirds Tales from Above podcast for reaching out to say hi. I really enjoyed his episode on searching for his Uncle Robbie, who was a top turret gunner in a B-24 during World War II and lost his life in that conflict. And thanks too to everyone else who listens, gives me a good rating, and drops by on the Facebook page. It's really appreciated. But let's get into this one. World of Warbirds normally is a podcast that profiles an individual warbird from design to prototype, operational history, and post-war life. However, from time to time, I like to break up that pattern by taking on either a bigger picture look at some element of World War aviation, like the episode on Big Bombers, or drilling down deeper to explain an element that might be generally taken for granted or misunderstood. Today is one of the latter, an examination of supercharging and turbocharging. This is a continuation of my Quest for Power series, so if you haven't listened to the episode on cylinders, be sure to give a listen. Superchargers and turbochargers are terms that come up when we are discussing warbirds, usually in this manner. So-and-so airplane had poor performance, and then there was an update, and a new supercharged engine was installed, which led to more power. Or we could be discussing the merits of various fighters, and it will be stated that this type of machine had a better performance at high altitude because of its supercharged engine, while the other was better suited to low-altitude duties because of its lack of engine boost. So, beyond having really powerful, kick-ass names, what are these things known as superchargers and turbochargers? I like to think of a reciprocating piston engine as a living creature, whose raison d'etre is to produce power. It's happiest when it's noisily sucking up avgas and making horsepower. Its heart, in a collective way, are the pistons that move back and forth, pumping charges of fuel and air in and blowing out exhaust. It has a nervous system of electrical wires and sensors, harness and magnetos and spark plugs. Oil and coolant, like blood, flows through its body, cleaning, lubricating, sealing, and cooling. An engine is a picky eater, only feeding on a liquid diet of pure, high-octane fuel and it breathes through air intakes and cleansing filters, like lungs. It's not a perfect metaphor, but it especially helps when we start to think about going up, as aircraft are wont to do. As an engine is transported to higher altitudes, the air gets thin, and just like any living thing, our engine starts having trouble breathing. By the time you get to 18,000 feet, about half of the atmosphere is below you, meaning that there just isn't much air for our living engine to breathe. It's not able to fulfill its life's work of producing power very well anymore. What to do? It was a problem that had been worked on for different applications as early as 1860, when the Roots Brothers, who founded the Roots Blowers Company of Connersville, Indiana, patented a design for a blower for use in blast furnaces. It took some time, but in 1885, Gottlieb Daimler 
received a patent in Germany for supercharging an internal combustion engine, which basically used a blower to force more air into the engine. There are several types of blowers, such as the Roots compressor, the Lisholm twin screw, the sliding vane, the scroll type, or centrifugal supercharger. So what do these blowers look like? Are they just fans or what? Actually, when you look at them, they seem more like pumps than fans. But instead of moving liquid, they are pumping air by use of meshing lobes, vanes, or screws. After a new technology gets added, soon after come the refinements. You can imagine that a blower geared to the engine could end up providing too much pressure at sea level and not enough when way high up. The solution was having multiple speeds and then multiple stages. Think of it like switching gears in a car. At around 12,000 feet, when the throttle was wide open, the pressure in the intake manifold would start to drop off with the supercharger in the low speed setting. The pilot would then pull back the throttle and switch to the higher gear, which would then spin the supercharger faster and blow in more air. The pilot would then readjust the throttle to the desired manifold pressure. Later on with newer technology, switching these settings became automated. To get even more boost at high altitudes, you could add a second stage to the supercharger, which would compress the air again once it came out of the first stage. Initially, pilot controls were needed to control the dampers that would either cut in or cut out the second stage before things again became automated. Does anyone see a problem with compressing all this air and twice? Compressed air gets hot. If you blow all that high-pressure, high-temperature air into the engine, you can cause the fuel-air mixture to explode on its own and not when the spark plug fires. This is called detonation, and the overly hot air can cause this, as well as heat damage to the engine block or pistons. To cool down the compressed air, they added an intercooler between the stages, which is like a radiator to draw away the heat from the compressed air. Another way to cool down the system during high power settings, such as takeoffs or dogfights, was to install a water injection system. This squirted water into the cylinders, which helped cool things down. The liquid was actually a 50-50 mix of water and alcohol. The alcohol would prevent freezing and would burn also. The water would flash into steam, which would add more power and allow the fuel-air mixture to be very lean again set for the highest power setting without worry of melting the engine. Water injection added a couple of hundred horsepower for short intervals of a couple of minutes each or until the water ran out. But what actually turns all the parts of the supercharger stages? It needs to be powered by the engine itself, the energy being provided by belts, gears or chain drives. And there's the rub. Even though the supercharger adds power, it also steals some engine power to do it. If only there was a way to get the energy to power the blower for free. But that's just a fantasy, right? There's no such thing as free energy. Alfred Bucci thought that he knew of a way. He was born on July 11th, 1879, and attended engineering school in Zurich, and worked as an engineer in both Belgium and the UK. Early on in his career, he became obsessed with the idea of improving the efficiency of engines using the wasted heat in the exhaust. 
1905, he patented something he described as, quote, a solution to capture such heat using an axial compressor, radial piston engine, and an axial turbine on a common shaft, close quote. And there, in just a few succinct words, my friends, that is the description of a turbocharger. A power turbine is placed in the exhaust stream that spins with the residual power in the gases escaping from the cylinders. This turbine is shafted to a compressor that shoves more air into the engine at the other end. The beauty of the turbocharger is that the power to operate the compressor is essentially free as it is taken from the energy in the exhaust that is being dumped overboard anyway. In fact, the early name for the turbocharger was Turbo Supercharger which meant that it was a supercharger powered by a turbine instead of being driven from the engine. But Bucci wasn't able to start making them right away, as the technology and materials just weren't ready yet. In fact, it would take another 10 years for a prototype to even be built, and it wasn't all that reliable. You have to understand that the gases coming out of an engine are crazy hot, requiring special metal alloys and techniques to prevent them from melting or bursting into flames. I can give you a personal experience of seeing a turbo in action. I was the first officer on a Piper Navajo flying back from Val d'Or, which is in northern Quebec, back to Montreal one snowy night. I had never flown in the Navajo at night, and once we reached altitude I was startled to see a bright red glow coming out from some vent slits in the side of the engine nacelle on my side. It looked like we had an engine fire. But my captain wasn't concerned when I pointed out the cherry red illumination coming from the engines. That's just the turbos, he said. Don't worry about it. So that's the kind of heat that we are talking about. In the end, Bucci ended up specializing in turbochargers for maritime diesel engines. In 1925, he successfully incorporated a turbocharger on a 10-cylinder diesel engine, which boosted the power output from 1,750 to 2,500 horsepower. This engine was used on a couple of German passenger ships. Meanwhile, back in the States, Sanford Alexander Moss was a 45-year-old engineer working for General Electric in their steam turbine division in Lynn, Massachusetts. In 1917, his boss tasked him with coming up with a new type of turbine which could pre-compress the air before going into an aircraft engine carburetor. Moss went to work, and the next year, in 1918, he was testing his turbo supercharger at Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio. In order to test it at high altitude, but without actually flying, he installed it on a V-12 Liberty aircraft engine and drove it up to Pikes Peak, Colorado, the summit of which is 14,000 feet. And it was a success, producing far more power than an engine without turbocharging, which is known as normally aspirated, if you want to be technical about it. A couple of years later, in 1921, Moss and his team installed his device on a leftover World War I Lusak biplane. The LUSAC, which stands for Le Père, United States Army Combat, was a biplane designed in France but built under contract in the USA for the war. It was usually powered by a normally aspirated Liberty engine, which could power it up to a ceiling of 20,000 feet. However, with Moss's new turbocharger, 
it was able to climb up to an amazing and record-breaking altitude of 40,000 feet. Moss retired from GE in 1938, and in 1940 he was presented with the Collier Trophy, which is awarded to those who have made, in quotes, the greatest achievement in aeronautics or astronautics in America, with respect to improving the performance, efficiency, and safety of air or space vehicles. People like Glenn H. Curtis, Orville Wright, Howard Hughes, Donald W. Douglas, and the entire crew of Apollo 11 have all won the Collier, so it's pretty good company. So, now we all know the difference between a supercharger, which is powered by the engine, and a turbocharger, which is powered by waste and thus free energy in the exhaust gases. Now that we know this, the question is, why would any engine manufacturer install a supercharger instead of a turbocharger? For example, the famous Merlin engine, which powered the Avril Lancaster, de Havilland Mosquito, Hawker Hurricane, P-51 Mustang, and Supermarine Spitfire, did not have a turbocharger. It did, however, have a multi-stage supercharger. It's because although the turbocharger was more efficient, it required a hell of a lot more of ducts and piping to collect and control the exhaust, route it to a turbo, and then duct the intake air back to the engine. All of this stuff needed space, and of course it was heavy. Everything in aviation is a compromise. Turbochargers were installed in P-38 Lightnings. You can see them on top of the wing, way back where the boom starts. They initially had a lot of problems with the engines in Europe, however had better success in the Pacific once all the teething problems were sorted out. B-17s, B-24s, and B-29s all had turbochargers. Fun fact, the B-29's cabin was pressurized by compressed air supplied by the turbos of the inboard engines. Instead of heading for the carburetors, some of the compressed air was directed through the aftercooler and into the cabin through the cabin air valve. They're handy things, those turbos. The P-47 and Vought F-4U Corsair are a nice comparison, as both use the Pratt & Whitney R2800 double wasp engine, but the P-47 used a turbocharger and the Corsair did not. The turbocharger system installed on the P-47 is pretty crazy. I'll post pictures on the Facebook page as it's hard to believe. The turbo is actually installed in the tail, with the exhaust piping going all the way back there and then the induction air being ducted all the way forward again. It's partly what makes the jug such a chunky plane. All that ducting looks more like my house's furnace system. However, what all that ducting and piping did was to provide more power at high altitude. Because even though the P-47 looked less sleek and less aerodynamic, and it weighed a thousand pounds more, it was at least 13 miles per hour faster than the Corsair. And this fastest speed was up at 30,000 feet, while the Corsair was fastest at 19,000 feet. Lastly, you may hear the term turbo compounding, which really came in after the war. In this case, the exhaust gases run through a series of power recovery turbines, which not only drive the compressor, but are also geared back to the propellers to add a few hundred horsepower back to the system. This was good, but these engines were incredibly complex machines 
that had reached the end of the line in terms of the technology. With this power recovery turbine driving a prop, the next step was just to forego the whole piston engine thing at the front and just insert a compressor turbine in hotch section and then bingo, you've got a jet. Which is the end of our story today. But turbojets will certainly come up again when we talk about the ME262. Please let me know if you like these departures from the examination of individual warbirds, and if so, suggest any future topics that interest you, either via email or on the Facebook page. Thanks for listening today. If you get some joy out of listening, please consider supporting the podcast by making a modest donation via PayPal. My PayPal address is at WOWB17. That's at World of Warbird 17, or if you want to remember it this way, at WOWB17. You'll have my eternal gratitude.